must I do to inherit eternal life? The rich man asked Jesus as he knelt at his feet. There was something about Jesus, something about what he spoke of God, of God's reign, how he lived a radically faithful life. There was something about this rabbi that let this man know that Jesus would have the answer to the question that had burdened him his whole life long. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus was leaving town, going out on a journey, and the man didn't want to miss the opportunity, so he ran and knelt at Jesus and asked his question, what must I do? But when Jesus looked at him, Jesus could tell that the man already knew the answer to his question. You know the commandments. Jesus said to him, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud, you shall not steal, honor your father and mother. That was the kind of list that any rabbi could give, the list of the great commandments, the the way that God's people were called to live in community with one another. And anyone who kept those laws, anyone who loved and lived at peace with others would know what it means to inherit the full and unending life that God bestows upon God's people. He knew all that, but that wasn't what he was asking. He wanted to go further in faithfulness. So the man looked up at Jesus and said, Teacher, I have kept all these. Literally, I have guarded, I have observed all of these since I was a child. His faithfulness had made him prosperous. He was rich. God had blessed him richly, and he wanted to do more. He needed to do more. He knew that the blessings he had been given should be used to make God's reign come among God's people. So Jesus looked at him and loved him. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. The look that Jesus gave to him was a look of agape, of divine love, of unconditional love. Jesus loved him right where he was in this earnest quest for faithfulness. And Jesus said to him, you're missing one thing, just one thing. One thing is keeping you out of God's kingdom, holding you at arm's length from God's reign, and it's your money. But you already knew that, didn't you? That's what's holding you at arm's distance. So sell it. Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When he heard those words, the man was shocked. Mark tells us he went away grieving because he had many possessions. He had always figured that the blessings God had given him would be the way that he made God's will apparent not only in his life but the life of his neighbors but Jesus said no that's the very thing that's getting in the way in order for you to see how God is at work you must give it all away throughout the millennia God has been the God of the poor the God of the weak and the God of the vulnerable our God is the God of Abraham and Sarah of Rahab and Ruth, of Mary and Joseph and the carpenter's son, Jesus. Our God is the one who identifies with those who can't make it on their own. 
in every generation. Human beings reject that truth about God and replace God with an idol of their own creation, something shiny, something strong, something impressive. Because it's easier to believe that God rewards the prosperous, that God celebrates with the successful, that God prefers those who can make it on their own. And it takes hard faith Deep faith to believe instead that God prefers the destitute, the disenfranchised, and the despised. And we, as those who pursue a relationship with God by following Jesus, by following the crucified one, we celebrate that truth of who God is in our lives and in our faith. But how do we make that real? How do we make that paradoxical truth, paradoxical truth about who God is real in our lives and in the world around us when the world is obsessed with power and prosperity? Jesus gives us the answer. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And then you will find treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. I spent my first two years of seminary at Ridley Hall in Cambridge, England. And when that second year began to draw to a close, it was time for me to make plans for that third year back in an American seminary. At the time, I was engaged to be married to Elizabeth. And although I was really sad to leave the friends and colleagues with whom I had developed deep relationships over those two years, the thought of spending that last year as a newlywed with my beloved filled me with great joy. But in a way, the thought also filled me with overwhelming fear. How in the world would we make it financially? We were going to move to Northern Virginia, where the cost of living is outrageous. We hoped that Elizabeth would be able to get a job as a nurse since she was about to finish nursing school, but we knew I would be a full-time student who didn't contribute anything to the marriage except more student debt. As I thought even beyond that year, the fears became paralyzing. How long would it be before this nurse and newly ordained preacher would have enough money to get out from underneath that debt, at least far enough to buy a house and start a family? How would I honor the promises that I made to Elizabeth's mother and father when I asked if we could be married, promised to care for her as best I could when that doubt seemed so large? And as I filled out the financial aid form and the numbers stared back at me, that fear became even more real. I felt awkward calling the priest from my sending parish to ask him whether our church would be able to support us in that third year. It was a part of the paperwork, and so I explained to him on the form that it seemed rude for me to ask, but I had to know. He was confused by the whole process, what financial aid form, and I explained to him how the process worked, that in order to get need-based aid, I would need to indicate my income, including parish and diocesan support, as well as our assets and also the, the student debt that we had. And when I mentioned the debt, he interrupted me, even more confused. I thought you graduated from college debt-free, he said. And I told him I did, grateful for the scholarship that I had received. But seminary, especially seminary in England, where he had encouraged me to go, 
was very expensive. <laughs> I thought your parents were going to help you with that, he said, recalling part of an earlier conversation we had had. And he was right. They helped with that. But there was still a lot left that I had to pay for with student loans. How much, he asked. I didn't know what to say. I didn't dare allow my mind to wonder where the tone in his voice was inviting me to go. And I remained silent so long that he had to repeat his question, how much? So I told him. And he said, give me a week, I'll call you back. A week later, he called to tell me that he had found some parishioners in our church, people I barely knew because it was a church I had joined only as a college student, and college students aren't known for their faithful attendance. <laughs> but he had found these parishioners who were willing to pay off the entire amount. Tell me where to send the check, he said. In an instant, Elizabeth and I became tithers. Because when pledge cards came around that fall, you better believe the first 10% of our income went right there on that card. I knew what I was supposed to do. In that generous gesture, our priest actually gave us two remarkable gifts. The first, you probably can expect that we were able to start marriage without that financial fear. We weren't worried about how long it would take us to afford a family, how we would show our parents that we really were going to make it how long it would take me to prove to Elizabeth that marrying a preacher wasn't a lifetime sentence of financial hardship. But the second gift was more important. It was more enduring by showing us in an instant what it meant to be good stewards of the resources that God had given us. That preacher showed me what it means, showed us what it means to put aside an attitude of scarcity and doubt and worry about whether there would be enough and discover what it means to have confidence that God will take care of us. Life was hard in that first year of marriage. It was hard for several years, working two jobs, making ends meet, but that fear went away and it never came back because that practice of giving over to God from the beginning, from the first fruits that God has given us, taught us that lesson that we learn every year when we fill out that giving card, that our power, that our strength comes not from what we have. It comes from God. And God's limitless love then can govern our lives. And by being a steward of those resources, we are able to give our whole lives over to God with no strings attached. Stewardship isn't about raising money for your church. Stewardship isn't even about raising money to support the ministries that do God's work in this place. Stewardship is about letting the reign of God, the love of God, the blessing of God, the abundance of God flourish in our lives by setting us free from the tyranny of money and the false idol of scarcity that it creates in our lives. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed, astounded, distraught. How can anyone be saved, they asked. For mortals, it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. By setting apart that first 10% of our income, we remind ourselves that we're not responsible for saving ourselves. 
that what we must do to inherit eternal life is simply to belong to the family of God. That's what we do. That's what we do every year. We sever those bonds, those crippling bonds that imprison our hearts and our minds and convince us that there might not be enough. There won't be any more, but there's already enough. This year, when it's time to make your financial commitment to God's work, whether it is in this church or wherever it is that you participate in God's work in the world, when it's time to make that decision, don't write down on the card what you can afford. And don't put down a little bit more than you gave last year, because this is an opportunity that's more than that. This is an opportunity for all of us to be set free from the fear of not having enough, to learn again what it means to trust that God is with us and to become vessels through which that reign of God, that truth of God is manifest in our hearts, in our families, in our church, and in our world. What must you do to inherit eternal life? Like the rich man, you must find the path upon which you know what it means to let God reign in your heart completely. You cannot be a vessel for God's power in the world if wealth still has power over you. So sell what you have. Give it to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven and following Jesus will lead you there. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.